Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 121, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, tips for holding a more effective and efficient meeting, and more schools are buying into vaping detectors. But is it a waste of money or a new necessity? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why you shouldn't discourage your students from using their fingers in math class. Stanford professor Dr. Joe Baller joins us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by the hippest principal I know, Christina Pollard. <laughs> Christina. Hey there. Ah, I'm pretty good today. <laughs> I had a friend, I had a friend tell me, he says, if you use the word hip, you're no longer hip. And yeah, I can't really. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what he told me once, but I'm using it. Um, so, I'll take it. So the other day when we were doing that podcast with um, our friend, Gabe Polk Payton, um, there was a little topic that came up that I wanted to dive into a little bit deeper. There was the topic of um, keto. Yeah, dieting, the keto life. I try not to say diet. It's got to be a lifestyle. Okay, keto lifestyle. And apparently both of you guys were (laughs) in the keto lifestyle. So yes, how's that going? Actually, it's going pretty well. Um, She started having some success with it, a few of my other friends. And I did a little research and I, I just thought, my lifestyle is so hectic and so busy and oftentimes quite stressful that I just have not ever been able to be consistent or to, you know, take the time to meal plan and all of that. So I, I took up a chance to work with her keto coach. Mm-hmm. Um, she's actually someone that's from around this area. Her name is Ember yeah. Ahua, and she's my keto coach. And let me tell you, I've lost 15 pounds. So you just like eat pork rinds the whole time? Is that kind of the idea? I haven't had not one pork rind, actually. Yeah, that's, I, that is keto, right? It, it is, but I don't like that. Right. <laughs> what I, I think the biggest difference is that um, there's a check-in and check-out with her. Um, she's written my meal plans. She's taught me products that I can use to replace other things that are favorites for me. Yeah. Um, it's been, um, this is my third week, and I have to tell you, I am not craving bread, pasta, any of the things that were my favorite, which was mostly bread and pasta. I was never really a big sweets eater or soda or anything like that. But man, I loved Olive Garden. But now I can have zoodles and I've made some and it was delicious. Well, good for you. I, um, when we were on the show, I asked the question I already knew the answer to just because I wanted to see if uh, Gay would take the, the bait on it. And that was, how do you know you're in ketosis? And, and she was pretty... Um, she was open. She was pretty direct with you, but I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I check um, my ketones once yeah. a week, and I measure them against a legend that I have, and I'll send them to my keto coach, yeah. and she'll celebrate with me the fact that I'm still in ketosis, because when you're in maximum ketosis, you are burning fat. It but takes like two weeks to get there, right? 
Absolutely not. Three, okay. Three days. Three days. Okay. Yes. Wow. I did not if, realize If that. you do it right, you, yeah. you can start, you can really get into ketosis on the third day. Interesting. We'll have to check back in with you like in a month or so or two months and see how it's going. Well, the um, the plan with her is for 30 days. Yeah. So this is my third week. Check back with me in two weeks and see what I accomplished because after the 30 days, I'm on my own to maintain this lifestyle. Well, let's jump into the teacher's lounge. Um, I won't ask you what you have to bring to the teacher's lounge to eat. But uh, there's got to be some stories going on, right? Uh, always, always. Listen, there's a school district in New York City where the chancellor, which is the equivalent of a superintendent, decided to just cancel all principal staff meetings for the month of September. Hmm. Now, how would you feel about that? Um, there's two ways to look at that. You know, I'm never really one-sided. As for my experience this month, I feel like I'm out of the building quite a bit with different meetings and just different uh, sessions that we have to go to. And I don't like being out of the building. I like to be there, being involved. Um, but at the same time, I don't like my time wasted. Mm-hmm. And so if the meetings aren't really worth the face-to-face, then yes, cancel them. So like... How is his district responding to this? Uh, I think it's a little bit of a struggle because, you know, that's just like saying I'm not going to check my email for a month. We're not going to meet this month. I'm not checking my email for a month. Without having some face-to-face, you don't really get to determine progress, um, where deficits are. You don't get to really check on your people. That's also Mm -hmm. important for, you know, having strong relationships. And I go back to that all the time in our episodes, but it's so important in education. But not only that, how are you modeling or you know, measuring the effectiveness of, of what the district is standing for if you're not coming together to meet and collaborate and talk about those okay. things. Okay, a few questions. Now, you have, I guess, like assistant principals, one, two, yes, three. Yes, I have now. one. One, okay. And then, like, who else helps you run the school on a day-to-day basis? Oh, my goodness. This is a major team effort. I yeah. mean, my main office secretary, we call her El Capitan. I mean, right. she is really the one in She's charge. Like operations Absolutely. Yeah. Then the bookkeeper, she keeps me out of jail. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? But you can't do anything without your bus drivers, your custodians, your cafeteria staff. So they how, are super important for the students. How many, How often are you meeting with those core leaders? Um, well, we meet weekly. Okay. And so like... Tell me some tips that you do to kind of, you know, make well, let me describe it like I have a leadership team, which is comprised of someone from the reading department, someone from the math department, someone from special education. You see what I'm saying? And the mm-hmm. counselor so that we can look at all parts of data for the school and make good decisions for the school um, and just make sure that the teachers are aware of everything that's happening. Also, get a poll back from teachers. You want teacher opinion. However, on Wednesdays is what we call our staff development meetings. I do not have faculty meetings where teachers sit and listen to me give them a bullet list of things. We have training, where we're, whether we're either planning together by content area mm-hmm. or we're planning by grade level or we're bringing someone in that's going to train all of us, improve our best practices. I have what's called the superhero news and it goes out every Friday and it gives them all of the information that they need to know, whether it comes from the state department, from the district office, I share strategies, different websites to help them in their class. And I put all of that in a memo um, and they expect it weekly because that saves them time. They can look at it anytime they get ready on their cell phones or on their laptops. How long does that take for you to put together? Um, I kind of add to it day to day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it doesn't take a, a lot of time in my opinion. It's much easier than writing a letter because I even have a newsletter for parents. And so as I as I am exposed to new information, I quickly jot it down Mm -hmm. and pop it into a newsletter. Now, I might not go out this Friday. I try not to make it too long because then it's a turnoff. But I already have the next four weeks newsletters started. 
You said something a second ago talking about data, getting data. Do you feel like meetings should always have some data in them? Well, I don't want to say that it needs to have data, but there's not really anything you can discuss without data unless you're specifically just talking about a best, a best instructional practice, how to deliver you know, mm-hmm. instruction in a classroom may not be related to data. It may actually be related to the actions and behaviors of the teacher as as aligned to the state standard. Did the the writer and what you read have any tips on like how to make a meeting more efficient or was it basically just like cancel all meetings? Okay, first of all, your meetings have to be intentional. So for example, at the beginning of the year, our teachers meet and we establish norms and we put up an anchor chart and everyone gives their opinion on how the meeting should be conducted. Should they be efficient? Um, should we all respect one another? We need to arrive on time. Everybody has to participate. It needs to be relevant, you know. And so everyone gets to put a post-it note up there, and then we type it up, and it's hanging, and we try to stick to those norms. Um, intentional, we're not here to waste anybody's time because we all have families and other responsibilities. How long should a meeting be in your mind? We, we try not to meet over an hour. Okay, so now we're anything mm-hmm. beyond, you, you've lost them. If it goes over, it's because the conversation is so rich, mm-hmm. we lose time. That has happened. Right. Um, and I'll keep looking at my watch, but I watch them deeply engage with one another, and I let it be. But you also can look at your teachers and tell, if I'm getting the glassy-eyed, I'll shut it down, I'll look at my AP, and I'll, you know, kind of give her the signal to hurry up and she might not be finished, but I can feel the energy from the team. I was um, looking through this article. Um, see how old this was. It um, was Elon Musk. You know who that is? Mm-hmm. This one was back in August. So it wasn't too old. And he was given some tips of like what he believes, you know, he runs Tesla. He runs SpaceX. Yes. Um, he's obviously seems to be somewhat of a brainiac in terms of operating companies. And he has three rules. And one is no large meetings, which seems would like it would be hard to, at least for a teacher or an educator to, to live up to this. But he thinks meetings shouldn't be larger than three to six people. Well, we start out as a full staff mm-hmm. um, delivering the purpose of the meeting and maybe sharing some new information with them. But then we always break down either into grade levels or into content. And then, um, and which is a good idea. That's a good point to break it up. He also says, um, if you're not adding value to a meeting, you should leave. <laughs> that seems crazy. I mean, but, well, if you're being a I negative guess, Nelly and you're just d- yeah. a downer, I mean, and you're the only person like that, then you bring the team down. Right. Um, but at the same time, as a leader, you have to be able to, I don't know, sniff your culture. And if it's been a rough day, just cancel the meeting that day yeah. and reschedule it. In the interview, in the article here, someone asked him, you know, isn't it rude to leave a meeting at Tesla where you aren't adding value? And he said, no, it's expected. <laughs> so oh, I can't say the same in yeah, our staff yeah, meeting because yeah. then how are you going to get a makeup training? But right. there's a couple other steps that uh, the article pointed out. Like you talked about data. It should be data driven right. as in, you know, that's part of having a purpose, but it needs to be action oriented. What do we expect to see? What's the outcome? Either right. we're going to get lesson plans done for the next few weeks and really unpeel our standards, or we're going to look at the data and decide on how we're going to reteach to help those children who didn't master skills. You know, what, what product are we going to develop together? And then you should have meetings that are reflective. So over a period of time, we, we like this term is getting ready to end. We're mm-hmm. on the eighth week. Right. We will have a meeting where the teachers will be surveyed, but not in a way where they'll just drop their heads and get on their computers and answer one. But we'll have conversations about actions we've taken, some changes we've made this year. We've got a huge focus on improving our reading scores. And so we will want their feedback on what's working, what's not working, or what do we need to do, you know, in addition to what we're doing. Have you ever used, 
You mentioned this tool, and I've seen it in action once at a function. And help me figure out what I'm trying to think of here. It's a tool where you like put something on the screen. It's like a game, and everybody's like hopping on their phones. There's a couple of games like that now. You're, you're thinking of a charades game that you could no, do. It's not charades. Are you talking about Kahoot? Kahoot. That's it. So. Kahoot is used in the classroom a lot, yes. right? Have you ever used it with adults, like yes. in a meeting? Like yes. in what way did you use it? Um, well, after, well, one of the most important things is we talk about cyber safety and mm-hmm. acceptable use policy for the district. Um, and we found that it was really important based on some actions the previous year that we made sure teachers understood um, just what all that meant. And so after a series of training, we came back in the first five minutes or six minutes of the staff development, we played a game to see if they really maintained or, you know, held on to the, to that knowledge about, you know, acceptable so, use. So you felt like it worked out? With it? Oh, it was totally fun because it yeah. was competitive. You have right. prizes, you put them in teams, or we also use the website with the random name generator. Okay. And so you don't know if your name's going to be called, so you got to pay attention. That's cool. It just keeps submitting lively and um, it's fun because teachers love to compete. That's a good idea. Anything else on the list I didn't ask you about? or yeah. um, No, just really one of the things that teachers want to know, like I'll give you an example. I set a meeting for tomorrow to meet with my ELA team. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I set it on the calendar, in the notes section, I told them what to bring. That automatically lets them know what we're going to do. You know, instead of, okay, where are we going? Are we in trouble? Right. And that- so making it clear, hey, let's get together. We're going to look at pacing a little bit. And we're going to have just a conversation, make sure we're all on the same page and we won't meet long, but it's important for us to keep in touch. Whenever the word mandatory and meeting are put together, I think people's mind often go to negative because mm-hmm. they're like, why do I have to be there? Like, right. Why is it I'm a veteran. Why do I need that? Right. Yeah. So interesting. I don't use that word. Good. I put required. If it's a district-wide meeting, we're all required to go. Yeah. Um, but I try not to use mandatory because it does have a negative connotation. It kind of does. Well, um, I've got a topic for you, and this may not affect you in your school because you have youngins, right? Like you're... Pre-K through eighth grade. Oh, you, eighth, eighth grade. No, this will affect you. Um, another area school, this one's in Ohio, is buying vaping detectors as for concerns with e-cigarettes. Um how big of a problem is this? Is it getting out of control? It's out of control for some areas. Now, yeah. you might not find this to be true. We don't have those in our school. It's not an issue whatsoever. You, wait, you're saying you don't really have vaping as an issue in your school? Period. Period. That's good. So I think it's it's got to be a community yeah. issue, like depending on where the communities are, because yeah. that is not an issue in my school. But I have a sister school in my district who has seen a little bit of it um, you know, in the past year. So I think it's really important for districts to put something, a measure in place. Yeah, I know for a fact that at my kids, one of my kids' schools, it, it is a problem. Even in the middle school grades, it usually starts and that's seventh sad. or eighth grade. Yeah, and that's, it's young. Their access, it's ridiculous how easy they can get them. Yeah, that, and then it, it only gets worse probably, you know, as you become a freshman and sophomore and, well, and work your way through high school. I don't know if they'll work their way through high school. Recently, there have been a number of young adults right. um, and teenagers who have, you know, really gotten ill um, and almost lost our lives through the vaping. Yeah, and there's no doubt. I mean, vaping, when it came out years ago, was kind of like, well, it's not cigarettes, right? But it's like you're still putting chemicals you into are, your body. You are, and it's you don't of, even know what chemicals you're putting in your uh, body. I may make some people frustrated with this, but, like, you know, we used to go to tanning beds. That's what people would do. And people would, you know, oh, skin cancer, you got to worry about that. And then people were like, well, I'll just do um, the spray stuff. 
but we really don't know what we're spraying on us either, right? Like we you act don't. like that's. We're, but we're I say love your skin as it is, right? You we're know, still spraying a chemical on you there. If you've so. got that olive tint, well, you'll get it where you get a beautiful tan in the summer. Yep. Great, embrace it. If you turn red when you're in the sun, hey, cover up. Yeah, <laughs> and no you know, doubt. but but love it. So uh, this district in Ohio looks like they're going to be putting detectors in four schools and wow, sp- and spending I think it's sixty four thousand dollars. I wonder if they wrote a grant for that or if they went through their healthy schools. I don't know the answer to that, but um, I just kind of wonder. Does Clearly, they have a problem and they're seeing it a lot in their schools to put a measure in place like this. So, I mean, other things that schools can do, they can, you know, add, update their drug policy list and so forth. Make sure vaping's on there. That seems Well, like the most good, important right? thing is to keep kids educated. We know in... Um, October is Drug Awareness you know, Week, Red Ribbon Week, but that's a great time to talk about the impact that tobacco has on children, and then you can slide vaping in there. What type of responsibility does a school have, though, to, to police this? I mean, what? I think, know, I think we have a huge responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a health and safety issue. And in schools, safety is your number one priority. Mm-hmm. These t- vaping detectors are supposed to, I think they act as basically like a smoke detector from what I understand. They'll pick up on it, but then they can send messages to key people, whoever you assign it to on their oh. on their phone. So mm-hmm. like say you have a teacher who's across from the bathroom or, you know, um, just whoever makes sense. So to, it's a handheld device? Well, the, the detectors are sit like a, a smoke detector from what I understand. And then that sends a, a trigger to uh, let people know via another device through their phone or whatever to say, hey, there's some vaping going on at such and such location. So I have a few questions. Mm-hmm. I'd want to know, have consent forms been sent home and signed? Um, were parents and students fully educated on what this mean? Did they establish board policies um, in place of this to make sure that we're, they're not violating the privacy of students? Right. And so what's your concern on privacy there? Like, Well, it what you have in your backpack, if it's not um, a weapon or, you know, a danger to another student, if we don't have probable cause, then we really, why are we going in their backpacks? So if you're getting a detector, um, and say their parent vapes. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about like it'll only go off if they're puffing. Okay, so literally if they're puffing in the bathroom, yeah, like, so to speak. Okay, that, that kind of changes things then. Well, yeah, yeah. you got to police it because now you're yeah. putting other children at risk for the chemicals that are floating in the air. It's no different than smoking a cigarette in the in the bathroom stall. And from what I understand, because there isn't a lit flame, like kids are pretty slick about using these like they're yeah, basically in the palm but of you their gotta, hand and, you gotta monitor the bathrooms you gotta monitor yeah so um is sixty four thousand dollars in four schools spending too much to fix this problem or does it make sense to you it's difficult for me to have an opinion on it since i don't really see that issue in my school but at the same time having 99 percent poverty um having a 99 percent poverty level within my building i can't see spending sixty four thousand dollars on that right yeah that's it seems like a lot to me but um, there's just so many other things that that could go towards. But it, at the same time, I'd, I'd really need to have more information. Like what's the, you know, um, economic status of that area where they were able to spend that type of money. Again, I told you I wanted to know where did that money come from? Because if they wrote a grant specifically for that, that's a health grant, mm-hmm. then you really can't judge them for the amount if they were awarded that mm-hmm. to prevent a huge problem within their building. Right. But I guess a grant, though, technically... It's somebody's money. They're being very specific, though, in the grant. Yeah. And they yeah. may have said, how can you... There, there are grants out there that how can you help make your school, you know, uh, healthy or more healthy than it is? 
All right. So the National Institute of Health Monitoring Future Survey showed that the percentage of high school seniors who had vaped nicotine in the previous 30 days increased from 11% to 21% from 2017 to 2018. That's a lot. And vaping among 10th graders increased from 8 to 16%. And vaping among 8th graders increased from 35 to 6%. So to think that, you know, at some schools, you may have 6% of your 8th grade. It just seems That's really 6% young. of 1,300 children. And, and I actually think, like in a school like the one that my son's at, it's higher, like from right. hearing him, because he's open to, with me about it. And, he, and he'll my tell son me, has shared as well from his school. Yeah, and he'll say, um, you know, so-and-so, he hasn't really made a good decision. And I'm like, what's that mean? He's like, oh, well, he started vaping. Yeah. And, and it's frequent, like, and it's frightening. I want to know how they get access. Where do they get them? Who's selling it to children under the age of 18? I don't know. We might need to do a, uh, an investigation. We need to investigate that. All right, are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Roll it on me. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is Dr. Joe Bowler. Dr. Bowler is a professor of mathematics education at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. She's also a driving force behind the popular instructional resource, ucubed.org, and author of Mathematical Mindsets. Dr. Bowler, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You know, it's really an honor to have you here, um, and I think you're going to probably set me straight today because when I was in high school, I just kind of accepted that I was not a math person. And you're going to help yes. me understand why I'm ridiculous and really... Well, I totally understand why you would think that because of the terrible system we have out there in many cases. Um, but yes, it's true that anybody can learn maths. We now have all of that evidence from the brain science. Unfortunately, the teaching that's out there conveys a lot of messages to young people the teaching, the culture, TV, and other things that there are math people and non-math people. You said something there. We have the brain science, and, and I listened to a TED talk that you did. Like mm -hmm. you literally mean like this. There is actual evidence that yes. you know this is ridiculous to say that your your brain's not programmed for math. Exactly. Yes. So all the neuroplasticity. It's decades now of evidence that tells us that nobody's born with the pathways. Um, that are mathematical pathways in the brain. But in fact, those come every time we learn something. And I like to show a visual, which I can't show with this podcast, but every time we learn, there's one of three things that happen in the brain. You either start a new brain pathway, which is a very delicate pathway at first, and then it becomes stronger and stronger, or you connect two pathways um, that weren't connected, or you strengthen a pathway. The, those are the three things that happen when you learn something. And the more we learn, the more mathematical pathways we develop in the brain. Now, nobody's born with those pathways. So um, learning maths really is about uh, experiences of learning. And you can learn whatever you want to learn. There aren't limits to what we can learn. And everybody can be successful in maths. So what are we doing wrong in the classroom right now with math? Ooh, where do I start? <laughs> right. Uh, so what are we doing wrong? I would say... Uh, an emphasis on speed is very, very damaging in mathematics. And uh, we have time testing. It's particularly damaging when little kids are given lots of math facts to memorize and regurgitate. At that point, when they're given those time tests, many of them develop maths anxiety. And from that point onwards, it's downhill for them. It's not just the rapid time tests that are damaging or that give the idea of speed when teachers ask a question 
And then they take an answer from the first kid that shoots at their hand. They're also giving a clear message to the rest of the class that speed is what's valued. So a lot of people think you have to be very fast with numbers to be good at maths. That's a misconception. I like to share the stories of lots of mathematicians who will openly talk about how slow they are with maths, how they were never fast, wow. how they thought they were stupid when they were in school because speed was what was valued. So um, that's one of the things we really need to change, the, uh, the idea that to be good at maths, you have to be fast. When I was in school, it was almost frowned upon to use your fingers. And yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's not right, right? We should allow... That's another thing we need to change, yes. So um, another really important part of brain science is showing us that visual thinking is really important in mathematics. Um, every time you think about maths, there are five pathways in the brain that light up. Two of them are visual. So every time we think visually, it's actually very important. And a, a piece of this visual research has also shown that fingers are really important. So uh, if, if I was to ask an adult to do a calculation, an area of the brain would light up that is seeing fingers. Mm. And Even if you're not um, using your fingers, you're kind of seeing them, you're that's saying? That's right. Yeah. You're not using them, but your brain kind of sees them. And for adults, even, how well they know their fingers predicts their scores on calculation tests. It's pretty crazy. But can you elaborate on that? Because I heard you talk about this, and, mm -hmm. and I didn't quite get it. It was You were kind of trying to describe it, I guess, as if you have your hands underneath a table? Oh, yeah. So the tests that the neuroscientists do for finger perception, they call knowing your fingers really well finger perception. And they test how well you know your fingers by... Having you put your hands somewhere you can't see them, under a table, under a book, and then somebody touches each fingertip, and not in order, and you're meant to say which fingertip is being touched. So if you try that with young children, you'll, you'll discover that they're just developing this finger perception. Um, they may be better with their dominant hand than their other hand. Um, and they may be kind of slow or really struggling to work out which finger is being touched. So this is also, we now know, why musicians are often better with maths. Oh, wow. Yeah. Pe pe people have wondered about this for years. Like, what's this connection between maths and music? Why are so many musicians, mathematicians? And um, this is a piece of it that think musicians, most musicians develop very fine-tuned finger perception. So what can we do to keep from crushing students' spirits when it comes to math? Um, well, that's a great question. So we do lots of things wrong. I was just only beginning with the speed piece. Right. But um, the other thing we do wrong is we teach formal maths probably too early to kids. If you look at the successful countries like Finland, nobody does any formal mathematics till after the age of seven. Before that time, they play with ideas and shapes and puzzles, but they're not taught things like uh, long division and multiplication. That comes later. Now, those kids in Finland then go on to top the world in maths achievement when they're 15. So we know that we don't need to teach kids formal maths very early. And that's one of the things we do wrong. For many kids, their first experience of maths is confusion. Um, then we teach maths as a, as a set of methods and procedures when actually it's a, a set of ideas. And um, a lot of kids think that their role in maths classrooms is to memorize the methods that teachers set out. Mm -hmm. um, we need to change that perception. We 
We um, have taught taught a summer camp a couple of years ago where we taught maths differently to kids. We brought in 81 students to Stanford. Most of them, actually all of them said, I'm not a math person when they came in. Mm -hmm. But we taught the maths in a different way. And one of the parts of what we did was the maths was visual and it was creative. And a really important piece was we valued all the different ways students saw the ideas and all the different ways they thought about the ideas. So... It was all about multiplicity, like what are the many different ways we can think about this and the many different ways we can solve this. And we would have these great discussions about the different ways people saw it. And so that's very different to your standard maths class where the teacher puts methods on the board and the kids reproduce them. I know you're an advocate um, for what you call number talks. Can you kind of explain what that Mm -hmm. is? Yeah, number talks are amazing, actually. they I learned them from Kathy Humphreys, who has books about them, and Ruth Parker. They both have written about number talks. So what happens in a number talk is you ask a class uh, a calculation kind of question. And a favorite one I like to use is 18 times 5. And you ask them to work it out in their head without pen and paper, and then you collect in any answers that kids have. Usually there's more than one. You put those up on the board and then say, okay, who would like to defend one of these? Who can tell me how they got this? So I did, we did these with our summer camp kids every day. And as an example, if I were to ask 18 times five, usually there's four or five different ways of solving that. So some people might say, well, I didn't work out 18 times five. I worked out 20 times five and then I took away 10. Other people might say, well, I worked it out by saying 10 times 5 and 8 times 5. Other people say, well, I, instead of working out 18 times 5, I worked out 9 times 10. So they halved the 18 and doubled the 5. So I, you then collect all these different methods. I like to draw them as well as visuals. Now, whenever I've done this with kids, they're they're mind blown by it by it adults also and part of the reason for that is usually they've grown up thinking there's one way to solve a problem so when i ask 18 times 5 and we have six different ways to solve it that's shocking for kids mm-hmm. um so i love number talks they're kind of uh they engender the creativity in maths because we get all these different ways of looking at it and different ways of thinking about it They help kids with mental maths, with calculating, um, but they get to see that maths is a subject where you have all these different ways of thinking. And I always call the strategy, I put the kids' names up for each strategy. So like, this is Nick's strategy and this is Joe's strategy. And then later I might say to them, okay, can anybody take Nick's strategy and use that for 12 times five? And so people would use Nick's strategy on a different number. Um, So, yeah, it's part of my big mission, I guess, which is to make maths a subject that's very visual and creative and all about multiple different ways of seeing and solving it. So let's talk about the mission a little bit. I mean, you're a a professor at one of the best universities in the country, if not the world, um, in terms of teaching education. Um, So you can can affect those who are at least going into the educational system, but that's a pretty small number of people that you can really teach. So is Mm -hmm. that your idea behind ucube.org is to almost reach more people pretty much? Definitely. Yes. I 
YouTube came about actually uh, a few summers ago when I taught an online class. I'd been hanging out with the people at Udacity and Sebastian Thrun and there was a lot of excitement about online classes and I thought, why don't I make a class that shares this brain science? It's so important that everybody can do well in maths, that mistakes are really one of the greatest times for your brain. And um, so I put it into an online class. I had no idea if anybody would take it. But that summer it released, um, 15,000 maths teachers took it. Or maybe it was 30,000. It was a huge number of maths teachers anyway. And um, at the end of the class, a lot of people were saying, can we have more? We, you know, this has been great, but please keep giving us more things. So that was when Ucubed was born. Um, myself, I sat down with a colleague of mine, Kathy Williams, who was the director of mathematics in a school district at the time in San Diego. And we said, why don't we make something where we can keep getting these ideas out to teachers? So I still remember a couple of years ago, I guess, our, f- our first month, we had about 5,000 visits to the site. We were very excited about that. Um, we're now just short of 25 million um, wow. 25 years. million so wow. lot yeah there's a lot of excitement people really like the resources um, we um, uh, we try and make everything free on the site there's a couple of things like we have some curriculum books and online classes that you buy but uh, the vast majority of the site is free lessons uh, for teachers little white papers that share evidence, lots of tasks, just individual tasks that teachers can use, videos for kids. We make lots of mindset videos to change kids' ideas about maths. And one of the things I'm excited about, actually, uh, that's on the site is we made a little student online class. It's free. It's six sessions that are about 15 minutes each. Um, and we've just completed a study. It's just released. Actually, the results of this have just released that the kids who take the class end up doing significantly better in maths um, on standardized tests. They also change their mindset and their ideas about maths. So uh, lots of resources on the site. I saw a quote from uh, the dean of the uh, Graduate School of Education, Dan Swartz, and he says that you're the public mm. face of K-12 mathematics reform. So if you could, if it's not too much pressure, give yourself mm. a grade. How are you doing? <laughs> or have you changed math uh, oh, gosh. around the world? Or do you guys have way a really long way yes. to Yes. Well, one of the things we uh, advocate is getting rid of grading. So I won't give myself a grade. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, think, I think we're... I'm happy. I'm very happy that we're as, as widely used as we are. Um, we have most of our... People, most of our participants are in California. It's the biggest state, which is where we're located. And then the U.S. is the biggest country of the numbers of people. But we're also very popular in Canada and the U.K. But um, the newsletter, our newsletter is opened in 140 countries, which always blows me away. I can't even imagine 140 countries. But um, So I feel like we're doing well, but I, I don't feel that we're doing well enough because... I don't know, maybe, maybe we are um, known by half a million maths teachers, maybe. Mm-hmm. But actually, there's 15 million maths teachers in the United States. And I don't mind if teachers come to Ucubed and think, oh, I don't like any of this. I don't want to use it. But I would like them to at least know it's there because it's a free resource. And 
many teachers who know about it um, are, are really, you know, happy they know about it. I know you have a pretty big following on Twitter. Um, you're at, mm-hmm. at Joe Baller, your name, uh, on Twitter if anyone wants to find you that hasn't already found you. But uh, is that the place you really like to, to reach out and communicate with educators or is there another spot? I do like Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah, Twitter's a big one for me. I, I like Twitter a lot. I There's something about Twitter users or at least the ones I'm connected with. It seems like a very open-minded space, although I know there's plenty of kind of haters on Twitter, but uh, for the most part, it seems that when I put out ideas on Twitter, it's a really amazing group of people who discuss the ideas and try things and come back and talk about them. So I don't feel that the people on Twitter that I'm interacting with are those who um, don't, you know, are not really passionate about teaching, who just turn up because it's a job. I think the passionate, caring uh, educators and teachers who really want good things for their kids and are willing to read research and try new things. So I think it's a really great community. Well, we really appreciate you uh, reaching out to our listening community and the educators that we have that follow our show. And uh, hopefully, if they hadn't heard of you, they'll they'll jump on board and uh, check out YouTube.org. Um, are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure, yes. All right. <laughs> First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Um, oh, this kills me. English. English. See, I love it. I love it that you, you didn't say what we thought you would say, you know. Um, what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? We are not teaching kids to be creative and flexible enough. It's too much rule following and memorization. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves a set of teachers who believe in them and who know that they can do anything and that they can really succeed. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? I think for teachers in schools, they're really challenged because they are controlled by people above them who uh, set out curriculum and pacing guides and assessments. So we work with many teachers who would love to give their kids an open, creative visual maths experience, but they feel constrained by the standards and curriculum and other things that are imposed upon them. What's the best gift to give an educator? Uh, Knowledge, I would say, is the best gift for an educator. When we know new things and learn new things, that changes who we are as people. I like to share a framework of learning as identity. When we learn new things, we become different people. We can see the world differently. So um, I think knowledge and learning. Which teacher changed your life? Gosh, that would have to probably be my maths A-level teacher in England. A-levels are the kind of advanced things you do when you're 17, 18. And I had had maths teachers my whole life who just came and put methods on the board and we just had to follow them. And then I had this amazing woman teacher, and it was one of the few women maths teachers I'd had also, who got us to talk about maths together and discuss ideas. And it just changed the whole subject for me. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. Pen. See, I think you'd think math folks would want to erase stuff, you know, but no. No, we like mistakes. Mistakes are good. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. 
or tweet us at class dismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.